that's the Foo Fighters with Time Like These. Times Like These, rather. Uh, welcome back to Life MMA in the NBA. I'm your host, DJ San Marco, on a uh, MMA Sunday night. Extremely, extremely happy to be joined by Bloody Elbows, um, John Nash, known as A. Hey, oh, excuse me. Um, at Hey Not the Face on Twitter. John Nash, how are you this evening, sir? Very good. Thanks. Thanks for <laughs> nice, nice intro. Thanks for having me on. Oh my goodness. It's a pleasure. I've been wanting to talk to you forever because one of the topics that resonates with me the most is mm -hmm. um, what's going on with the fighters and their seeming lack of ability to negotiate in earnest with the UFC. And I'll use seemingly again on any level. Um, I could be wrong about that, but you know, when I know about a subject tangentially, I try not to act like I know more than I know. So I'll try to get someone that actually is an expert and does know. And my friend, that's you. So well, I don't know if that's an accurate description of, of, but you know, I'll take it. But I don't think that's accurate. I'm not. I'm not an expert by any means. But I do. I do know how to bullshit, so I guess that's the right. That's uh, I'm the right person to have for that. And it's gotten you this far, uh, so <laughs> that's something to be said for that. Um, so, John, uh, I had written down some questions uh, just to. I wanted to get you, and I remember the first one was for you to sort of set the table uh, for us. Uh, and what situation do UFC fighters find themselves in today, and how? did they arrive here? Well, I guess the situation the fighters find themselves is they're basically in a monopsony. Um, and what that is, is a monopsony is the reverse of a monopoly. A monopoly is when there's, first I should qualify, a monopoly is the, the Webster's dictionary definition of monopoly is when there's only one seller of an item. Uh, that's the dictionary definition but generally speaking, when we talk economic terms or legal terms, when we talk monopoly, we talk monopoly power. That is that there might be more than one seller, but one seller dictates the market price. They have such overwhelming control over the market, they dictate the price. And the UFC is the reverse of that. Instead of a, a seller, they're a buyer. They're the, they, they have market power over the purchase of, a, of fighter uh, wages, you know, uh, fighter services. And because they have that power, they dictate the price. They, they can limit how much fighters get made, how fighters get paid. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a whole lawsuit going on about that. But the lawsuit really, the antitrust lawsuit that's currently underway is not really trying to just determine if the UFC is monopsony. Mm -hmm. I think the evidence is that's overwhelming that they have monopsony power. The lawsuit's over if they violated the Sherman Act by abusing that monopsony power or intentionally acquiring it. That's where the that's the question that has to be settled in the court. But the idea that the UFC has monopsony power or not, I think that's settled. It's pretty obvious they have monopsony power. They get to determine where the price is set. The floor is set by all the different promotions, but the ceiling is 100% set by the UFC. But if they, in fact, have that monopsony power, is there an illegality that exists because of that? No, technically, no. I mean, in the past, there, there used to be an antitrust law. There used to be a, the, the concept that too big is bad, that you could bring an antitrust suit and break up companies because they got too big and is basically a Brandeisian uh, theory of law that we do not want firms to get so much power 
no matter how they got it to dictate it. We've since moved to a consumer welfare model, which focuses on the damages done to the consumer. Mm -hmm. But there, there still exists, you know, uh, ingredients in the law that allow you to look at uh, does it damage competitors? Does it damage the, you know, we've kind of ignored this, but we can also use a monopoly and antitrust law to look at does it damage workers? And so there's nothing illegal about being a monopoly or monopsy power. You can be, that's, that's legally allowed. Again, what's illegal is abusing it, uh, having that power and then a, a, using it to, to dictate terms grossly on competitors, on the consumers, whatever. And the other thing's illegal is to intentionally go out to acquire that monopsony power. So, but the second thing is what kind of what I was getting at. So there is something that is actionable in that second piece that you talked about. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's basically what the lawsuit accuses. Okay. The lawsuit accuses the UFC of intentionally acquiring market power by going out and, and and purchasing and merging with their biggest competitors to take them off the table and then having contracts that are very restrictive on fighters that prevent them from testing the free to make it extremely difficult to test the free agent market and allow these key asset fighters to go into the market to other promotions and that's that's intentional in other words they are trying to get all the top fighters and all the market and hold on to it under that accusa accusation that they're doing that and then the other one is abusing it. Well, if they have this power, if they have this market power, and then they force fighters to sign contracts that they don't want that are onerous, or they force, force competitors out of business, that's the abuse of that market power. So um, to, to sort of continue to contextualize um, where we're at, we have to know as the audience, you know, we need to know when did we, when did this happen? I assume you've been watching pretty tough. You've been following MMA and the UFC prior prior to Tough. Yeah, I, I actually I, I watched one of the early UFCs. I don't know if it was the first, second, or third, and I actually hated it in the early days because I was a boxing fan. I thought this was just fat guys punching each other. And then you know, in the early aughts is when I rediscovered it. I actually worked on a movie with uh, Frank Shamrock and Randy Couture, one of the worst MMA movies ever made. No, no rules, but I was reintroduced to the, the MMA to those guys, mm -hmm. and they spoke so you know eloquently about what they're trying to do. And I go, oh, it's not just fat guys punching. And I was in martial arts at the time, and so I, you know, I I went on my way to watch Randy Couture fight uh, 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 Chuck Liddell. That was mm -hmm. the first one I really paid attention. And after that, and then I watched Pride right after that. So probably around 2003, I think it was. Okay. That I really became a fan again. I gave it a fair chance at this point. Just and, before tough. Um, yeah. So, did have we always been in this place in your estimation since you've been following it, or did we get to this place at some point? And when was that? If so. Oh, it's, I mean, it's clear we were not always in this place because the UFC obviously didn't have market power before tough because there was pride and there's all these other promotions out there and they were making very little money. Uh, what seems to me what happened is after the success of tough, the UFC started making a ton of money, just gangbusters uh, pay-per-view revenue. And that's normal. That's called a first, you know, a first mover advantage, a pioneer advantage that a, an early firm that spent money and built something up gets the, to take advantage of that. And they started making a lot of money, but they benefited at the same time as they were exploding in revenue, pride ran into trouble, pride FC, and then pride basically collapsed and had to be sold. And this is where the, you could, this is kind of where the argument is the UFC abused their monopsony power because they had all this money in. And so they could outbid anybody for fighters. 
and outcompete and fighters wanted to fight from because they had more money. They also had the ability to spend money to acquire pride, to prevent anybody else from getting pride because pride had the legacy of Fedor Emelianenko and Vanderlei Silva. And, and so if you someone would win the pride title, yeah, the pride titles meant something. The pride brand meant something. So they could take that off the market. And there's an email in the lawsuit where the outside attorneys for Zufa basically say that was the plan, that our intent of buying pride was to make sure that no one else could acquire it and then close it down and bring the fighters in. So that's some evidence that they're abusing their market power. So the UFC now, before they had about 25% of all the top 10 fighters that were ranked at the time, mm-hmm. after, after pride goes down and they acquire them, they're now up to like 60% of all the top 10 fighters and they're generating a ton of money. And now that they're making so much money, they start doing what Warren Buffett always says companies should do is they start building moats. And so if a company makes a ton, they're the first mover advantage and they start making a ton of money, you expect all these other firms to enter the industry because there's money to be made. Mm -hmm. And some did. People got into the industry and tried to enter the industry. But the UFC basically did is they enacted moats around the key assets. The key assets are top fighters. So you became super famous in the UFC. They made sure you could not get out of the UFC. Made extreme, I mean, Randy Couture is a famous example. Wanted to go fight fighter. You are not leaving. We're not letting you leave. Or we'll drag out your contract, you know, for years. You know, our, our lofts get to go a whole year. They made it extremely painful for people to leave. So you're not leaving. And then they use those vast resources to acquire new fighters, sign them to long-term contracts, and then use the resources to purchase other 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 promotions to, again, build moats. They, the WEC, they bought that and put it on a separate channel to make sure that channel wasn't available, that network wasn't available to that promotion. Strike Force. <laughs> That's brilliant. I never thought yeah. of that. I didn't yeah. see that strategy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So because there, there's, you know, at the time, a limited amount of channels wanted to get in the MMA sphere. They knew that uh, the Outdoor Network, I think, the NBC mm-hmm. affiliate wanted to get in it. We will have a promotion we'll put on that channel so that no one else can be on it. Uh, then we get to uh, Strike Force. Right. Yeah. So UFC built up like 70% of the market share, and then they purchased Strike Force and take them off the market. And that for, they're the, the closest thing to the UFC. They had about, uh, I can't remember the exact percentage. I think it was like 15% of the top 10 fighters, but now the UFC has them. And now they're up to like 85% of all the top <laughs> 10 fighters. And so if you want to be a top 10 fighter and, and becoming a recognized fighter is how fighters make money. I mean, really it's, a, you know, you just look at the history of boxing. You rise in the ranks and you get more attention. Now, some fighters, they rise in the ranks, they get a lot more attention because they're charismatic, they're exciting, whatever. But generally, the higher you get in the ranks, the more the more prestigious you get, the more renowned you get uh, relative to where you were before. So if you look at a fighter and maybe you're like, oh, that guy's not nearly as famous as Conor McGregor. Yeah, but compare that fighter who's now ranked number three compared to when he was 25th, and he's a lot more recognizable, a lot more famous, a lot more fan interest than he was before. So the only way now you can rise up in those top ranks is if you sign with the UFC, who have all the top fighters, oh, and so that's the moat. You could make money back when you could have like banners and wear gear during fight week and in the ring and in the cage, and then they said, "Oh no, you can't do that either." That's well, that that another that, revenue stream they took away. Well, well, that's that's something that's slightly different because yeah. you still. To get, it's true, to be in the UFC is where you can make all that advertising money because people are watching the UFC. But now, because you have to sign with the UFC, they can make demands of you. And the demand is you have to sign over your sponsorship rights to come in the UFC, and then we can determine if you're allowed to have these sponsors. And that's the that's market power. They have the market power to dictate those terms. And the likeness to your rights in the game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like if you want strong-armed John Fitch and company. Exactly. Yeah, so it's that. That's a. I mean, that's a clear-cut definition of market power. Uh, a normal 
a normal competitive market would be like, oh, you don't agree with what we're doing. Well, go somewhere else. And people go, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere else because it's going to, they're going to offer me this and it's, it's to my advantage. But here it's like, no, because the UFC has 90% of the market. I have to remain with them. If I don't remain with them. There's no way I'll, I'll make a fraction of what I do now. Am I romanticizing when I say that the Fertitas were more fighter friendly or more willing to negotiate fight purses than they are today? Uh, I think you're a little romanticizing it because the Fertitas, I, I think they were somewhat more friendly, but part of that is the Fertitas set out, I, to me, this is just my personal opinion. There's no way, maybe they really were more into the fans, but you look at all the stuff that Endeavor benefits from now, the Fertitas did. The Fertitas are the one that introduced the really restrictive contracts, mm -hmm. or at least really enforced them and made them more restrictive. The Fertitas are the one that purchased, acquired all the competitors. The Fertitas are the one that really played hardball with everybody and, and cemented their place as the one single promotion. And they're the ones that made sure that the wages stay super low because that increased the value of the promotion. And they walked away with $4 billion. <laughs> so, I mean, we can say, I think there's some ways people felt the Fertitas they put a friendlier face on it, but really everything that Endeavor is benefiting from, everything that people are upset about, the fighters make such a low wage here, that was put in place by the Fertitas and intentionally, personally, I think, intentionally done so, so that the value of the promotion would skyrocket and they could leave with billions. So perhaps I've just romanticized their era, but it seemed like, you know, Chris Weidman said, oh, I only ever met with Lorenzo. I didn't meet with Dana. The Diaz brothers said the same thing. And now we see when someone's trying to negotiate the fights that we used to, and this is kind of where this, this entire episode is kind of headed in this direction uh, in terms of the fighters not being able to bargain for these purses. But at one point, they, a fighter would say, okay, um, you know, we want you, I want to fight this person. The UFC, hey, that's a great match. Let's make it. And now more and more matches are getting turned off based on that it would exceed the amount that they have earmarked for that card, whether it's uh, Colby and Masvidal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could, you know, John Jones and Francis, Francis and, and Derek, you could, you know. Well, I, I mean, I think that's true. There's a couple things at play here. One is I think Lorenzo was more willing to, you know, cut deals and, and go outside the boundaries because partly he wanted to build up the value of the UFC because, you know, the more fighters he had signed, the the more oh. market power they have. And then the future length, it would come back and they would have, you know, such a valuable product that he would make it back to the sale, the valuation. But the other thing we got to remember is uh, fighters are no longer in the blind. A lot of fighters are aware of what the rate is that the UFC, the wage split is between the UFC and the fighters. They're aware that the UFC is making a ton of money and they're hearing what other fighters make. And so they're trying to get, they, they want more money. And, and before back in the Fertitta day, a lot of fighters were completely blind, you know, uh, blind to what the UFC was making. The, the finances were not available basically until Lorenzo left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sprang, it came out a little, uh, I remember I did an article a little bit before and stuff, but it was minor, but really it was after the sale and the antitrust lawsuit together. Those two things released a bunch of information about what the finances of the UFC were. And so fighters became aware only after that of how much the UFC was making before the UFC could always play dumb. Like we don't have the fine. We don't have the money for that. You can't ask for that much. You're asking for too much. Now, a lot of fighters look like, wait a minute. I know you're going to make 10, 20 million on this event. There's no reason why I can't make more. 
And so that's the, that's kind of the different climate we are that fighters are willing to hold out a lot more now or ask for a lot more, but it doesn't, I don't think also that they might be holding out more. It's not really working. They're not no, really not getting, getting much anywhere. more. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just laughing. Cause you're right. It's not getting them anywhere doing that. It's getting you not to fight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you're just holding out and not getting it's there's no, I mean, I'm hats off to you guys trying to, you know, draw a line in the sand, put your foot down and hold out but you're also it's i mean sometimes it kind of works but usually it doesn't it's not it's not a really an effective strategy with dlc i remember hearing that noted journalist peabody award winner brendan schaub saying that <laughs> that he surmised the ufc fighters were getting 12 to 15 percent. he wasn't that far off so <laughs> no no he was pretty accurate i remember yeah. i can't remember he was in a discussion i believe with um oh uh Anik? No, was it? Uh, who was it? It was on with someone on radio podcast, and they thought it was like thirty percent. And he oh. was, yeah. But I, I think actually, I think Shop said like eight to ten percent, which was off, but still closer than the, you know, thirty percent or more that the uh, the other the host of the show was saying. Yeah, I think his his numbers were kind of fluctuating depending upon which uh, outlet he was on and what day it was. But uh... yeah, yeah, the, the numbers were flowing around a lot back then. But then, I mean, um, I released a. I did a survey and I started calculating and I think I came in, this might've been 2015 or 16, that the number was about 16%, 15 or 16% mm -hmm. the fighters were getting. And that ended up being, I was probably a point or 2%, 2% lower. So than it really was, it was like 17 or 18% at the time. Okay. But yeah, but we've known now for, God, we're, you know, seven years, six years, uh, what fighters, the percentage that the fighters are making. What is the number right now as you know it? Or to the well, I mean, we don't know the exact amount, but we can look at what the years we knew before. I mean, New York Post post for 2019 that the fighters were getting about 16% of the revenue that year based on finances ad. But then you look at the, uh, the production, the uh, direct operating costs on the Endeavor finances that release, fighter cost comes out of direct operating costs. So if you look at that and, and the percentage of direct operating costs is shrinking, Odds are either fighter pay is not going up or it's shrinking. So not not shrinking. You know the the pay might be going up on a uh, the wage level, but the wage share, their percentage of the total wages, I'm guessing it's been slightly decreasing over the last couple of years. So, so it might be fifteen percent at this point. Yeah, it might be now fifteen percent. Yeah, wow. because it what it's likely is that the pay is staying the same, but the the amount of revenue that Endeavor is bringing in is increasing. So they don't you know the, the share that means is decreasing. And so what the US, what Dana built his brand on or built their brand on was we make the fights the fans want to see. And and they did. I mean, we got to see Chuck and Randy a couple of times, uh, probably one time too many. Uh, and I don't know, did they fight three times or two? I think they fought three, right? Chuck and, yeah, that was a, they had a trilogy. Okay. So, and, and I could have had less of Bray Maynard and Frankie in my life. They fought for like three years, it seemed like. Um, but, but, um, no, in, in all honesty, they did, they made the fights that we wanted to see. We only wanted for a couple of fights, you know, Fedor and Randy, we wanted for Anderson and George. And I think there were other reasons why those fights didn't happen. That wasn't that the UFC didn't want to make them Brock and Fedor, right? There were other reasons, um, not necessarily their fault, but now I see cards where, there's a couple of names, and not to say that the cards aren't great, because when you're watching any MMA, essentially it's good MMA, but um, the names just aren't there anymore. And I think that's the difference. They built their brand on, we make the fights the fans want to see, and now I don't see that as being the case. Do you? Am I wrong? 
well, I think they still make the uh, technically the fights the fans want to see. Uh, it just it's pretty easy to make the fights the fans want to see because all the fighters are in the UFC, signed to contracts. So uh, eventually the fights happen. I mean, there's a few that are not. We're not seeing Ganu, John Jones, but th- that's very similar to the Fader situation. F- uh, Fader Millianenko did not sign with the UFC because he did not like the offer the UFC was making. He didn't want a contract that locked them in. And so on the UFC, I mean, internal reports supposedly showed that the Fader Brock fight was going to do, you know, huge numbers for, for, yeah. that they that they were predicting something like, you know, would break UFC 100's pay per view record if they did it uh, in Dallas Cowboy Stadium later in the year after 100, and that would break uh, the the gate record at the time for the UFC. So you're talking massive money, but they they had a business model. They did not want the risk, the potential of Brock, I mean, Fader coming in, beating Brock, and then exiting the UFC, known to the to the popular world now is the best fighter in the world at heavyweight. And that's kind of their, their always their intent is you cannot, if you become the recognized best fighter of the world, you have to be locked into a UFC contract. Those are the people we can't let you leave because if you go somewhere else and fight another top fighter and that guy beats you or whatever, then those people are the best fighters in the world and the fans might migrate to watch that. And so that's where competition springs up. And we're going to, in a second, I'm going to get to, um, you know, John Nash's prescription for what the fighters need to do. And that's what we're going to close the show with. But before I do that, can you explain to the audience what happens when a fighter gets a shot at the UFC title contractually? What happens to them? Well, usually, I mean, often to get the shot before you get an, an offer for the fight, they will come up to you and say, we want to make a, give you a new contract. And uh, the contract will often be much longer than the one you're currently on. Let's say you might have two fights left. They say, okay, you want to fight for the title? We're going to give you a new contract, and it's going to be an eight-fight contract, so much longer. But it's going to be a a big pay bump. So you're like, I can see the value of signing a new contract because it's a big pay bump. And it'll have, like, maybe pay-per-view bonuses on it. If you win and hold the title, you have a pay-per-view bonus. So there's a lot of incentive to sign the the contract because, yes, I don't want a long contract, because but the amount of money I'm making is going to be – greatly increase mm-hmm. by signing this contract. So that's one. And then, so you fight for the championship. If you win, now you're in this new longer contract, much longer. So you're locked in a contract. Mm-hmm. And because you hold the belt, the championship, there's a thing called the championship clause that at the end of that contract, if you still hold the belt, it'll add several fights to your contract. And so what that does is basically, yes, now you're the champion making more money, but the amount of money you generate might be incredibly, might be a lot more than the, what you're being compensated for. In other words, if you look at like what fighters do in pay-per-view sales, you see that fighters do have a huge impact on pay-per-view sales. You'll see one card does 130,000 in pay-per-view buys. There's not much interest from the fan. Another card does 700,000. Well, it's not because the UFC marketing was better for that event. They didn't run better ads. <laughs> right. It, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't anything because it wasn't because the UFC came up with a new logo that suddenly made everybody excited or, or Dana White did one extra pitch or Joe Rogan did. No, it's because the fighters involved drew that much more attention, anticipation, excitement from the fans, and they wanted to watch that fight. So those fighters, the, that fight added six, seven hundred thousand pay-per-views to that event. You would think, and and, and we, we call it's called MRP, marginal revenue production. The, the amount that a worker adds to something, that worker should get the majority of what they add. Mm-hmm. You know, they're adding on that much value. This is what you should give to the, the workers close to that. But because the fighters have signed over all their leverage with these long contracts, and if they when they make become the champion, the number one in the world, and suddenly their MRP 
blows up that they can add tons of value because now you become the super famous figure and a lot of people want to fight you. You've lost your leverage. And so you can only claim a small, you can only negotiate a small piece of that. And that's kind of the secret of the UFC. And that's why the championships, you know, that's why they use all their leverage to make sure you sign long-term contracts and they have all these things attached to it to make sure that you're going to be stuck with UFC at the end of that. So, I mean, that's, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's in a nutshell. It's a lot of the problems with the, and a lot of it starts with the champions because everybody wants to be a champion. And so you, you sign over a lot of your rights to become a chance to fight that guy, because you know that my value is going to explode. If I get to the top of the promotion to the top of the sport. And the only way I can get to the top of sport is agreeing to these terms. And you have no leverage against that value though. That's, that's. Yeah, that's exactly it because you have to come, you, you can go to Bellator, but Bellator has got a handful of rank fighters, you know, maybe two or three in your division. So you can, you can, and also they, because they have so few rank fighters, because of all these different reasons, people's attention to Bellator is minute compared to the UFC. You can go to one or PFL, but again, they have, most of them have zero top 10 well, fighters. John, let's talk about that for a second. Let's say I say, okay, I'm not going to accept the terms of that championship fight deal you're offering me but I have two fights left and they only have to offer you a fight once every six months. So I could be saying, yeah, I'm going to go to Bellator, but that's next year. And, but yeah. and so, and so then during that, that one year, they can offer me a fighter that, you know, is a seriously bad matchup for me. Somebody who won't, it's very dangerous, but won't improve my lot. And they'll actually, and they do this, they'll try to get you beat before you opt out and they and they let you out a year later and yeah. a, a year as a fighter is a long period of time yeah yeah there's i mean uh they don't do that as much anymore because they don't have to the, the ufc's market power is so great now they actually they don't do a lot of the stuff they used to mm -hmm. they used to be much more i mean that's where people talk about the Fertitas being nicer no uh lorenzo was the one if he knew you wanted to fight out your contract and was asking more than they wanted to change their their business model he could say okay we have tolling provisions and these tolling provisions for every time you're injured or couldn't make a fight, they add onto the contract. So instead, we'll offer you a fight. And then instead of offering you one for six months, we're going to wait a year or 13 or 14 months to offer you your final fight. So you have to, you're going to add a whole other year on the contract that you're just going to sit, not make money. And then we'll finally offer your final fight. And then we'll put it on the prelims that are untelevised because back then people had sponsors because so you, you wouldn't get any sponsor revenue and no one would see the fight. And then because Joe Silva really knows what he's doing. And he can ma really make sure you sign that contract. He's going to go, I'm going to put you as a striker against a grinding wrestler. that's either going to make you look bad or going to grind you out and win a decision. And you basically find your kryptonite. And so you had to face that. And then after you got through all that, then they could use it. And then if you didn't sign for a big amount, they could use a matching clause to prevent you from leaving, whatever. But through all that, then you could finally leave the promotion. And so it was a gauntlet and it was very risky. And so a lot of fighters you know, didn't want to take that risk because you knew at the end, it's like, there's a good chance that I could lose, lose all my value, a good, that I might be held out so long I can't afford it, all these various things. And on top of it, UFC has all the top fighters anyways. So by the time I go somewhere else, there might be no one to fight. There's no, there's a limited amount of Fader a million Ankos out there. That's why Arlovsky could do it. He knew Fader was out there. If you're in a, promo, a division right. where there's no big star out there for you to face, it's like, why would I hold out? They're the big stars here in the UFC. I better stick with the UFC. This is an incredible shit sandwich that these guys are in. And and you mentioned to me, you know, you, you slapped me in the face on, on Twitter, which was awesome. And you said it's not a league. Uh, and it's true. It's not a league. 
but I think of these athletes uh, ability-wise on, on par with NBA, uh, NFL, MLB athletes, and they're settling for something much less than that. Um, and that's what really bothers me. So, uh, John, what would be, you know, uh, Dr. Dr. John, <laughs> Dr. Nash, what would be your prescription for the UFC fighters if they said, hey, we're bringing you on as, uh, as an advisor, a paid advisor, by the way, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> we're again, a, a crooked paid advisor. Yes, yes. Paid, well, I mean, if they had Eugene, it could be worse. So let you know, still. So um, if they're bringing you on as a paid advisor uh, to give them a course of action, what would that be? Well, first of all, it's not my place to tell fighters what to do. Right. Because fighter, they all have different interests. They're the, all, not, the fighters are not a, a they're not a monolith with the, the identical interests. They all have different interests. But I, I could tell them what I think the problem is. And here's some things I think that fix those problems. And some fighters might say, okay, that's good for me and others not. One of the problems is everybody wants the fighters to basically hold, unionize or hold out. You know, basically go on strike. If you just did that, if you all got together and showed solidarity, that would change the UFC overnight. And it probably would, but you're never going to get solidarity. Uh I, I got a sense that a lot of people talking about this have not experienced with unions, have not dealt with strikes. I work in uh, Hollywood, LA, and that's a very unionized industry. And we've had strikes and I've, you know, I've, I've walked on, I've been on picket lines. So I kind of know how it works in the, in the, the process. And I come from a union family, but the problem with the a fighters union or the idea of solidarity is, is one is we see what happens when, when a company has a ton of leverage with Amazon. These guys work together and communicate. No comp, no, uh, no Amazon warehouse is unionizing. Not because they don't want to. They they've done polls, secret polls, and a lot of the employees want a union. You know, they they view themselves as mistreated by Amazon. But they know as soon as they form a union, Amazon can close that warehouse and just move it somewhere else. And all those workers are out of work. So what's the point of unionizing? And and that's kind of what the UFC fighters are in. First of all, they're not employees. They're independent contractors. That's their status right now. Now, maybe that's uh, maybe they're misclassified. Maybe the UFC is abusing that employment status. Sure. Right now, they're independent contractors. And so the UFC can basically fire you for any reason. Uh, they have to follow their contracts. But they, they if, if you start unionizing, or actually you are somewhat protected from unionizing, but they can come Associated. up for any excuse possible. Yeah. If you associate and anything that's supposedly labor-related workplace conditioning, you're not technically supposed to be protected from being fired, or, or at least they can relook at you and say, "Are you an are you an employee and not an independent contractor?" But you have no real protection. So the UFC, if fighters that are doing that, the UFC can basically eliminate them. They know their jobs at risk if they do that. There's not the there's not the the strict protections that you'd imagine. So so a fighter is risky to go out on a limb and try to organize other fighters. On top of that. Fighter careers are incredibly short. Mm -hmm. they, they're only a few years. Most fighters come in the UFC, fight a few times, and then get released. And even the ones that stick around, they fight a couple of years. Any sort of stoppage of labor, any sort of incident that prevents you from fighting is a huge dent in your earnings, your mm -hmm. career. And so for a lot of people, like, well, why don't they hold out? Because fighters already make very little money. The majority of them, some make money, but the majority of very little don't have much saved. They, they are waiting for that next fight to pay their bills. Telling them to hold out with the UFC who has guaranteed contractual revenue. They have hundreds of millions of guaranteed contractual money. They make enough to cover all their expenses to begin with. For fighters to hold out, the UFC will still collect those money as long as they put on the events. They're going to easily find enough fighters to cross the line to put on those events and still collect that revenue. 
So you'd be holding out a long time to, to force their hand. And during that time, more and more fighters would be like, I'm in financial precarious situation. I need the money. I will cross the line. And then they'd have more and more fighters to draw on to keep they holding would. events. So, I mean, you see this in the NFL. The NFL has a terrible history of strikes. They fail miserably. Mm -hmm. They striked in 82 and 87 and got nothing out of it. It's only when they went to antitrust lawsuit with the white versus NFL that they had any success. And that's the other problem you have the NFL is that the players have completely different interests. The majority of NFL players just wanted the season to go on so they can collect their paychecks because they, otherwise they don't make much. Mm -hmm. They make nothing. They might only play one or two years. The players that are stars, the Tom Brady's, the, mm -hmm. the, the Peyton Manning's have these huge long careers and they know they're getting screwed and what they're willing to hold out for much more but they're going to be outvoted by the vast majority of the roster. Mm -hmm. And so the, so that's the other condition. So the problem with fighters is you have this mass of fighters that are unwilling to lose even a single fight because that's a huge chunk of their paycheck. And the ones that might have longer careers, they can't depend on them. And so they also are only, you know, and also what the interest of those guys is not the same as them. So they have to negotiate on their own behalf. And so you have no, there's no way to get collective solidarity there. It's very difficult. And so that's one thing. That's why I do not think the idea of solidarity works. I really, it just doesn't, you're not going to get the whole groups of fighters acting together. Uh, forget the idea that, you know, that we don't know if they can form a union. Forget the idea that uh, union busting is relatively easy nowadays. It's mm -hmm. almost impossible to make a private sector union. Uh, forget the fact that, again, that the UFC, just the nature of the sport, 500 fighters in the UFC, 600 all around the world constantly rotating in and out of the UFC mm -hmm. means that it's very difficult just to get the card signed to right. even move ahead with the process. Well, you might get a third of the, the roster to sign your union card. Uh, and then next thing you know, by the time you presented it, half those guys are not no longer in the UFC. They bailed. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, I think that, um, baseball players and football players and basketball players, had similar difficulties but they had to see a common goal that would then they wouldn't see necessarily all the results for themselves but for future years and i i don't feel very good about like you heard saw jared cannonier say last night i really need this check i'm broke i mean this is a guy that was installing faa guidance systems uh for for landing aircraft uh before he became a UFC fighter probably made a really good paycheck. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, the, the difference in, okay, the other sports, so the one difference is they, they, they do generally have longer careers, large number of them. I mean, the NFL is the weakest because they have the most players with the shortest careers. Yeah. NBA is now the strongest because the average career is like seven or eight years. These people, yeah. it's like school. Why do, you know, a few guys come and leave in a year, but there's other players that play 13, 14, 15 seasons. So it yeah. balances out. You have a large amount of the roster is going to be on that team for several more years. And they know it. I mean, why do teachers can go on strike? Cause they know they have 20 more years left in their career. So if they, if they go on strike for six months and they lose wages for six months, they're going to make it up in 20 years. A fighter goes on strike and he has one fight left afterwards. He's not going to make up whatever he missed. And so that's, that's one thing fighting has that's very different than the other sports. The, the, the career is so short and it's so splintered that the, there's no such, such an individual sport. It's very hard to build it. But the thing that I would focus on, the number one thing, and this is actually in the league sports, people somewhat misunderstood. They, they think the unions got the, the fight, the players, all their, their money. 
in the in the other sports it was the unions protected it did the fight for them or the association whatever sport it is but what what but what 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 got players in other sports the money was free agency was competition not just free competition because you go to the nfl first of all in in the early 60s late 60s all the leagues made basically the same amount of money the players on average Mm -hmm. but in the nfl first off the afl showed up and suddenly wages skyrocketed for a while until they got rid of, until there was a merger and then the, the wages stagnated forever went down a, nba was the same thing the nba players weren't making much they had a union in 56 i think it is bob Cousy formed a union tried to get all these pension benefits couldn't get it later larry fleischer one of the, the great union sports representatives of all time came in worked with the became the president of the union worked with Elgin Baylor, worked with, uh, uh, no, Big O was actually the, the number one guy, Elgin Baylor, but Big O, mm-hmm. uh, Tom Heinsohn, uh, you know, just all these major players, uh, Bob Petit, all worked together. And they first, they did the 20 minute strike. They used the leverage. They're going to have an all-star game and we want pension. Mm-hmm. But the big thing that happened for the NBA was the ABA showed up and wages started skyrocketing. Wages went through the roof because there was competition. And NBA players who were making the exact same as Major League Baseball players who also had a union saw their wages go from being the exact same to being about three times as much in 10 years. And not only that, the, the wage share that Major League Baseball players had went from 20-some percent and fell for the next several years until it finally hit the basically what UFC fighters have, 17%. And they had a union. Why NBA players went from making you know, 30% of the league wages up until 67% of league wages just skyrocketed. And the big reason was competition in the ABA. And then what the, the, what the players did when they tried to merge them is they filed an antitrust lawsuit to prevent the merger of the ABA and NBA and then negotiated it using the courts and said, listen, you're going to merge them. You have to come and have a collective bargaining agreement with us that guarantees free agency. And basically it was free agency that guaranteed the NBA wow. players such a large salary. Major League Marvin Miller tried the same thing, similar thing tactic, and baseball took him longer because of you know the, the way the the antitrust exemption for baseball. But he got the reserve clause eliminated, free agency in baseball. They went from making seventeen percent of revenue to fifty percent in a decade. Salaries skyrocketed. So the secret of all sports, you know, you see it in boxing, you see it in high, all of them, competition. Free agency. Yeah, yeah, the competition can either come from an outside league or you have free agency. The problem with MMA is, like I said, the UFC is not a league. It's a single entity. There's not a ton of different owners competing for players. So you cannot get interleague competition like you can in the other league sports. You need competition coming from outside. And so so that's so they need the ruling against the monopsony to, to, to even start the ball rolling in the right direction. Yeah, I mean that's that would help. I don't think that's the only thing. I mean, maybe, even if they lose, there's stuff they can do. But the number one thing would be to do attack. I guess a couple things is one, the problem is some of the stuff I'm going to suggest that you can do. I don't think a lot of fighters want. I think most of the fans are against. I would kind of, if I'm a fighter, I'd kind of ignore the fans. I think Marvin Miller talked about this. The fans don't have the the players' interest. They really they don't understand what's going on. So I'd ignore them. But even a lot of fighters, what I'd suggest is. One thing you could try doing is lobbying for the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there, it's, it's not guaranteed, but there seems to be a good chance that, that what that would do is take away control of the titles from the promoters. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are against this. I know fans are, but a lot of the, the fighters seem to like that the UFC has the titles. They have, and this is, shows the split and difference in, um, in interest. Higher ranked fighters, generally top guys, are probably less interested in the UFC controlling the titles 
lower rank bottom guys, there's a there's a there's a psychic value of joining the UFC and knowing it's the biggest problem. That that's the that's the they get a bonus, a premium from doing that, and they like it that way. But if you could separate the promoter from the title and give an independent body control over the title, what that does, it prevents the promoter from having that as leverage over you. And also, wow. if they control the rankings, you have a value. You're not interchangeable. Right now, the UFC says, oh, you don't want to fight for this amount. We're going to go to this guy. If it's another party that controls the titles and rankings and who's a mandatory, they have to deal with you because that that sanctioning organization or whatever will declare you're the number one, you're the champion, and you are the number one contender. You get to fight no matter what. So the promoter's like, shit, I have to negotiate with this guy because if another promoter has him, he's still getting the title shot. Right, and so right. he, he can make, he can make a lot bigger demands on money, and so that's. But the problem again is that's that would help a lot. That would help a lot, and I think there's ways. You know, there's on top of that. I think one thing would be important for fighters if they wanted to go that route is definitely form an association, because the big complaint against like the Muhammad Ali Boxing Reform Act is that it's never enforced, and it really is. It's never enforced by the federal government or the ABC. So, but it is, uh, private action is undertaken by fighters, sometimes boxers who file lawsuits citing it. And, and, you know, so they have, you can do it on your own, but that's the power of an association was an association has standing. They can represent fighters. If the boxers had an association, they could do it for boxers. If MMA fighters did, they could do it on behalf of fighters. They could have standing. And so they could enforce the Ali Act on their own because anytime a promoter violates it, they, on one of their, on one of their members, they could file a lawsuit on their behalf. So fighters would never have to, fighters would never have to finance it individually. They could pull the resources and guarantee it's enforced. And then you can get into a lot of funky things too. Is like, if you don't like the, like all the nonsense with the sanctioning organizations we're seeing right now with, uh, uh, I mean, if you saw uh, the WBA, what they were doing late, lately and stuff, there's a lot of criticisms towards the sanctioning organization in boxing recently. You can actually, the, the, the association could enforce stuff on the sanctioning organizations. They could take them to court. They could declare, okay, all the, if we have enough members in this, we could say, we are only going to honor a, uh, sanctioning organizations that follow these guidelines. And you'd have set guidelines that don't are, aren't financially specific, but they would have a big impact on the fighters' finances. But you could say, like, we want sanctioned organizations that, that use the, the rankings from, uh, from box, you know, uh, box rec or they use uh, the transnational boxing association rankings or, you know, uh, a rating, sorry, transnational uh, ratings association board use their rankings. So, so you could basically declare and, and prevent even the, the sanctioning organizations from taking advantage of fighters. So you have a lot of control. And if you want to go even further, there's a, I, I, I actually think a, a boxing or MMA fighters association, if they wanted to, they could basically become a sanctioning organization themselves. And so that would be the next step, but there's, you know, then you start getting into theoreticals, but you have to, it's still a, a large, it's a large leap to get from fighters to get in that past and forming an association. But I think that's something that's more plausible. Uh, it would, it could actually accomplish something and it can accomplish something for, it couldn't do it for all fighters, but it could do something for a large segment of fighters. They have to find a common interest. Otherwise, uh, there are going to be a lot less millionaires than we saw during the first decade uh, of the 2000s, I think, uh, that are, you know, the George St. Pierre's of the world, people that are able to live the rest of their life. We're not going to see the, enough of those 
well, people if the I, I mean technically I think fighters are making more though technically than they were the difference is that they're generating huge amounts of money and they're not getting their their cut of that there I think there's more fighters now making more money than there was 10 years ago but the I, difference is if you're if you're if the UFC is struggling, it's like, okay, I, I really, if I, I am getting a third of their revenue, I'm, I'm kind of happy with that. But if you're like, oh, this event I'm on is making 30, 40 million and I'm headlining it and I'm drawing in, you know, a huge chunk of that, but I'm only getting 500,000, a million dollars. That's, that's a problem for a lot of fighters. You know, it's like, that's, that's not a fair split. It's like, I, I'm just, it's my labor, but I'm getting just a microscopic amount of that. Uh, the big problem too, is a lot of people worry about that would, you know, we, we want to make it a way that it just doesn't benefit the top fighters. Uh, the problem with MMA, I think partly is I do not see a way you can help all fighters because there's just a lot of people in MMA. Is there 500 and, in the roster? Well, that's five, the 500 in the UFC alone, just but you got UFC, several. Yeah. 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 We had several thousand people out there fighting. Yeah. And so there's, there's nothing that says there's no barrier to entry to become an MMA fighter. There's no barrier to entry to become a UFC fighter. You get onto Kent contender, Dana White likes you. You're a UFC fighter. So the, the argument, how do you, how do you make as much, and, and truthfully, this is, I'm, so I get some pushback for some people from this, but I don't think every fighter deserves like a minimum salary because there's a lot of people that shouldn't be fighting, you know, that go into local shows and are not very good at it and they're not generating any revenue and they're just getting their beat up or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, if we're paying, let's say, oh, every fighter deserves 5,000 minimum in the world, you know, who fights in America, well, then you're just going to, you're just going to incentivize people that are desperate to get into fighting to collect 5,000. And that kind of turns into bump fights. And that's a little disturbing to me, mm-hmm. but I do think if you're good and you can draw and you, you actually generate revenue, which collectively the UFC fighter roster does because the UFC is not selling just the pay-per-views and Conor McGregor and the top guys, they're selling a the full card. Yeah. A full, a full card of, of fighters that they're selling as the best in the world. And and ESPN is paying hundreds of millions for that. Well, that, that as a collective, they deserve a big cut of that. That that's their responsibility. That the brand name is built on the back of the idea that the UFC has all the best fighters that you are watching the best fighters. But they're not paid that way. The, no, the not at all. The bottom of the no, no, not at all. And that's why I think one like I, the my idea if you made the let's say a sanctioning organization of made an association, the association became a sanctioning organization. Just one idea, and again, this is 100 percent for the fighters. I'm just throwing up mm-hmm. ideas. If you did that then what you could do is you could set rules and you could say rules like, okay, uh, we're going to have a, a rule that become a mandatory. We're going to be like the IBF, the top four guys fight. That guy becomes a mandatory. So we have a champ, but the champ also has a pre a current mandatory. So there's two, like two existing paths to the title. Mm-hmm. And that way you can reach down to like eight deep. So those eight guys have a lot of value. And so promoters have to pay more. Then you have a rule. If you're in the top 10 to stay in the top 10, you have to fight a top 25 fighter. If you're in the top 25, you have to pay, fight a top someone in the top 40. If you're in the top 40, you have to pay someone in the top 100. What that does is the lower you get the rankings, you still have value because someone in the top has to fight someone in those rankings. And so a promoter knows, oh, my guy that I'm building up for a title chance so that I can get the title and I can promote the champion needs to hold his, his position in the rankings. I'm going to have him fight. I need to find someone to fight. And that fighter lower in the ranking goes, well, I know that you need to fight me to hold your position in the rankings. You have to pay me a comparative amount. And then this and goes, and then it would go down the road. So instead of just helping the top five fighters, 
you know, like some people worry, it you'd actually be, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd go down and you'd, you'd slight increase for the lower guys, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then a lot for the top, but still it would help. It'd be a broad swath of MMA fighters would get some sort of assistance out of the system. They'd have some sort of leverage. You're a genius, John Nash. You're a no. genius. That's, I don't, whether, I wouldn't whether go that you far. like it or not, you're a genius. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> where can, I know you're, you know, you're not the type of person who's going to celebrate yourself. That's, that's okay. Cause we're going to do it for you. Um, well, thank you. Appreciate it. Even though I, I speak, mostly I just speak nonsense and people buy it. So that's uh yes. <laughs> yes. We, I bought it hook, line and sinker. Yeah. Uh, please tell uh, the audience where people can find you. I know you're popular on Twitter already and in, in the media, but please tell them where they can find you. Okay, I'm on Twitter at Hey Not the Face. Uh, you can find me at um, I, I write mostly. I post on Bloody Elbow. I should have an article up uh, hopefully this week. It's with Vox uh, Media. I mean Vox Legal right now. Uh, I also do a podcast, a, a Bloody Elbow podcast called uh, Care Don't Care, which is yeah. really just about me not knowing anything about the fights, but I still tell you which fights I'm thinking about watching or or skipping. And then another podcast I'm on every other week called If the Shoe Fits with Alexi Old and Eugene Robinson, uh, replacing he, whose name will not be spoken. Where you guys say bad things about my friend Kid Nate. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, yeah. again, he was, his name is not to be spoken. So <laughs> That was like Voldemort right there. We better start looking around. Um, mm. Thank you so much for your time, John Nash. I really appreciate it. And uh, as always, I'll be following your stuff online. I really appreciate you contextualizing this for myself and for the audience okay okay sounds good thanks for having me on peace out man thanks that was john nash of bloody elbow i really appreciated him coming on to do this so um that was uh the last mma episode for a little bit so uh this is dj san marco for life mma and the nba saying peace out one love and we'll see you down the road